Hello, today we'll be talking to a very special guest, Reese, a frontline consultant anaesthetist, currently working in an ICU in the north of England and one of the first people who tested positive for COVID-19. He'll also be telling us what it's like to work on a COVID-19 ICU ward, as well as sharing his thoughts on government support, strategy and the consequences of poor government testing strategies. I'm sure you'll agree it's a very enlightening interview. My name is Marvin Fithian and this is The Live Ape. I started by asking Reese what it was like living with COVID-19. I basically started getting on well on the Sunday, kind of felt mm, feverish. And then I had sort of three or four days of um, really raging temperature, sweating a lot, having to, you know, like in the night I was having to like change my t-shirt three times because it was soaked through. I had, I think on day two, started with quite a bad cough and I felt like there's quite a lot of stuff in my chest. By day four, started feeling a bit better and had a chat with my boss and said, look, um, I might be ready to come back to work next week, but I'm slightly concerned about what this might have been because this didn't feel like normal flu. It went on for longer, it felt more severe. I then got arranged to get tested on the Thursday, drove up to the uh, A&E, parked in the ambulance bay, and they came out in full gear, you know, um, hats, masks, all that sort of stuff, full enhanced PPE. Came and did the swabs. I think normally they'd want to sort of take our temperatures and all that sort of stuff, but because we were medics, we'd, we'd done that at home. They took the swabs. My partner had also had a temperature of 38.6 at that point, so they took her swabs as well. And then about 24 hours later, we got a phone call saying that they'd both come back positive. Usually you work in obstetrics, working with pregnant women, but now you're being pulled into the ICU units to treat COVID-19 patients. Can you tell me what that's like? Intensive care normally means that you're on a ventilator, and then there's a high dependency, which means that you're requiring some kind of organ support. So patients who might go there might be people who are needing extra oxygen. We're at a level of escalation within the hospital now where the what would normally be theatre recovery, so where patients go after an operation, that's now full of ventilated patients. So that's the, that's the unit I worked on on Saturday. With that, they've closed off one entrance altogether. Another entrance, which is normally where patients would become would come in and out after their operation, is sealed unless we're expecting to admit a patient. It's sealed for in, uh, infection control. Under normal circumstances, there's just one entrance and one exit, with this third entrance for wheeling in patients. What you see initially is that you do your normal thing, which is get into scrubs and clogs, and then outside the outside the unit, you've got what we call these donning and doffing stations. So basically there's someone there, there's all of the equipment, the, the personal protection equipment, and someone goes through a checklist uh, in order that you put your um, equipment on correctly. We've all been what's called fit tested for masks. That basically involves having a massive hood over your head, them spraying a sort of a fairly un- unpleasant smelling chemical into it, and you telling it, saying why you're wearing the mask, whether you can smell it at all. And you then move your head into different positions and talk and stuff like that. They try and find out which mask fits you best, so you know which mask you, you need to wear. You then enter through the entrance doors, and it looks kind of like a standard ICU. Obviously, all the patients are ventilated. Primary problem in nearly all of these patients seems to be hypoxia, which means low, ox- low oxygen levels. And what problems associated with the disease are you seeing currently? Problems that seem to be associated with the d- disease are myocarditis, which is inflammation of the um, heart muscle. And gem- because I was on what, what's kind of like an offshoot of intensive care on the weekend, the problem people have been having is having uh, renal failure. 
lung disorders don't patients generally do better with dry lungs than wet lungs so I think there's been this sort of attempt to follow first principles, which is to keep people relatively dry, i.e. not giving too much fluid. And I think progressively there's this realisation that actually probably giving being a bit more liberal with fluid in this in this condition is probably better. I think from my understanding of it, that's because a lot of them are coming to the intensive care units very, very dry already because they've been breathing very, very fast, which you lose quite a lot of fluid through. If you think about dogs, that's how they so regulate their temperature, isn't it? They don't do it through sweating, they do it through through panting. Well, if you're a human and you're panting like that, obviously you lose a lot of fluid. The the other thing they're doing is sweating an awful lot. I, mean, I can remember from personal experience that, you know, I was sweating loads. So um, they're probably coming to ICU much, much drier than we would normally have patients coming to ICU. So we're being a little bit less restrictive, I think, in the early phases with fluids now to try and decrease the amount of them that, that are going into renal failure. We've now extended onto another ward, which is located quite close to the intensive care and high dependency unit. I think the plan is that we'll expand onto other wards as time goes on. And basically what we're seeing with patients is them very, very short of breath essentially when we pick them up and very tachycardic, um, so raised heart rate. I think the raised heart rate comes from a few different things really. One is the fact that they're very dehydrated. The other thing is, is that um, they're having to work very, very hard um, with their breathing, maintain their oxygen levels. Needs to be emphasised. It's sort of eight years since I've done proper intensive care. I'm not. Um, I'm not an intensive care expert by any stretch, really. Although I am used to working with ventilators and so on. And can you tell me more about the respiratory failure that we're seeing with the disease? There's different sorts of respiratory failure. The main job of your lungs is to basically take on oxygen and to get rid of carbon dioxide. When they fail, you can have different kinds of failure. So you can have type one respiratory failure which is low oxygen levels and type 2 respiratory failure which is often low oxygen but also with a high carbon high carbon dioxide and what we're seeing um, in covid-19 is patients with basically very very low oxygen they're still seeming to clear the carbon dioxide what's also quite interesting from what i've heard is that people are seeing is people coming into intensive into a&e not feeling all that bad not feeling particularly short of breath but with very very low oxygen there are sort of various hypotheses as to why that might be. Some people may feel that the the virus might be somehow blunting the brainstem's response to low oxygen levels, although I think the evidence for that is still to be kind of confirmed. People aren't looking or feeling massively out of breath, but yet have got very low oxygen levels. So yeah, just going back to the question about the ventilators, one of the terms we talk about with patients on a ventilator is compliance, and that phrase basically means the amount of pressure you need to put through the ventilator in order to achieve a certain amount of an increase in volume of the lung. So someone with good compliance, like hopefully I have at the moment, you don't need loads of pressure through the ventilator to get a good lung volume. And these patients, generally speaking, the, 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 compli- the, the compliance of their lung is good. What you can have with some patients who are sick with um, lung disease is you can have, they can sometimes have very, very poor compliance, which means you're having to drive very high pressures through their lung in order to get enough volume and then that in itself can cause damage um, but we're not really finding that with these patients the main issue seems to be that, that they've got low oxygen levels and so the treatment of that's fairly straightforward is that first of all you increase the percentage of inspired oxygen um, obviously up to 100% the next thing you do is well at the same time you increase something called their PEEP so PEEP stands for positive end expiratory pressure and if you want to kind of think about what that is you might have had an old like an old relative who was a smoker and sometimes you see them breathing out against purse lips that's basically people generating peep for themselves and you're basically doing that you're blowing out against something 
doing that basically to sort of splint open part of your lungs essentially this is basically a ventilator doing the same kind of thing and so we they're generally responding well to sort of high levels of that so what we're doing with those patients is we're proning them which means turning them face down and then still ventilating them and that can improve blood flow to certain parts of the lung and be beneficial in terms of oxygenation and what kind of results are you seeing from the ventilators the sort of chat globally once you're needing a ventilator around about 50 percent of people are getting off them but i don't know the numbers from this country i don't think i, I don't think they've been published as yet um, obviously the younger and fitter you are the better your chances and are you finding that staff absence is an issue currently well we've got enough staff but we're all having to work hard and do a lot of night shifts and all that kind of thing there's sort of the, the chat is that, uh, that nationally about 25 percent of the population is off and then that applies similarly to medicine that lack of testing is is going to affect it's going to have a negative impact upon staffing levels so how did it make you feel knowing you had had the virus? Well, I kind of, in a way, I know it sounds stupid, but I kind of felt a bit of a relief because I'd been quite sick. I thought people maybe just thought I was moaning at work. So it's kind of quite nice to be able to turn around and say, hey, well, look, it's, you know, it's the real deal. I've not just been faking it. And do you feel it made you a bit more fearless than other medics, knowing that you had the antibodies, having recovered from the disease? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think for, for most medics, there's two kind of fears going on at the moment. There's the fear of the sort of the unknown. So there's a lot of new things to learn and all that kind of thing. You know, a lot of new processes to pick up and change in shift pattern and all that kind of thing. But underlying all of that as well, there's a fear of actually contracting the disease. And we're not just seeing old people die from this. So I think this idea that, well, you're 40, you're going to be fine, I don't think is really holding quite as well as people hoped it might. Um, but yeah, I think underlying that, there's this fear of the disease. I think from my point of view, um, I'm having to be really careful not to be blasé about the personal protection, you know, the protection stuff. Yeah, a, because I've got to set an example to, you know, my younger colleagues. But I've also got to make sure that I protect staff around me as well. So um, it's a bit of a drag for me having to go put all this stuff on when I don't need it personally. But um, I'm having to be really careful not to um, be slack about it because it's important, you know, that I don't, that I protect my colleagues. And did at any stage you worry that you may still be a carrier? Yeah, well, I think now it's probably three weeks since I've been had symptoms. I think it's pretty unlikely. But um, I don't think it's quite clear when people finish. There's been quite conflicting guidance coming out from Public Health England um, as to when you're safe to return to work. What was a bit weird was when we, we, we went into uh, isolation before the, before the rest of the country had even thought about been been thinking about it, really. So we went into isolation. And then when they phoned us, the guidance they put out was, I think you had to be, I think, three days from your last temperature um, and you could still actually be coughing and you could return to work. And we'd actually, so we were kind of kept in, as it turned out, two or three days longer than we needed to be by those, the guidelines at that point. How difficult has it been personally to deal with the tragic consequences of the disease? I, I'm not really, at this, I'm at the stage of my career where that doesn't really upset me too much these days, really, but... Um, it's a pretty pretty nasty disease and, I, and i've certainly seen evidence of that in people i mean in in terms of stories that i've seen i think what what's so difficult is the social, social isolation that goes alongside it so you know there was that i think a um a teenager died in somewhere down south recently um and the family wasn't even allowed to be with him uh i can't remember if it was a male or female but you know the family wasn't the family wasn't even allowed to be at the bedside um and then wasn't allowed to attend the funeral i don't think um that's really cruel isn't it you know, I had a friend, um, who I think you you know, um, who's recently uh, had a child. And I think it was, you know, difficult for them not having anyone 
come and see them in hospital and knowing that they were going to go home and not be able to have family visit for another sort of six weeks, two months, however long lockdown goes on for. You know, all illnesses that kill people are cruel, I guess, aren't they? But I think this has got the added quality of the um, social distancing, which is going to be make, you know, make mourning and so on particularly difficult. And are you seeing any slowdown or any levelling off of cases coming into the hospital? It's a difficult question to answer. We're certainly expecting to see a continued rise in ICU admissions at the moment. And that's really the number that we're looking at, really, because that's going to be the one that impacts upon our workload most. The effect of the lockdown should be kicking in about now. So you'd hope that in terms of um, cases contracted, it should start dropping. So how prepared do you feel hospitals have been to the pandemic? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because we've had advance notice of these diseases before, uh, like so with SARS and MERS yeah. um, and Ebola, which obviously is a different kind of, kind of disease. But we have had advance notice of these kind of diseases before um, and it's not amounted to very much. A lot of the prep that went on in terms of sorting the hospital out went on while I was off sick. I'm, I'm, I must admit the management have done an amazing job in terms of setting out a clear plan for escalation and, you know, the staff have uncomplainingly moved on to the new rotors and are exposing themselves to a lot of risk. And to answer your question directly, how well prepared were we? Well, I don't think we had these plans written up at that point, but the plans have quickly been written up, new rotors have been written, plans to, to, of where to re, rehouse uh, intensive care units and so on have been quickly drawn up and executed. So I don't know how much of that was done in advance or how much of that, that was done on the spot. But they certainly did a great job. Um, And, you know, I think we're functioning very well as an organisation at the moment. Okay, so let's get on to testing then. We can see that other countries such as Germany had produced four and a half million tests by the end of February. And then we're producing 1.5 million per week after that. South Korea were testing 15,000 people a day again in February. Both countries published all these details in, with the World Health Organization, as did China of theirs back in January. We're now into April, and UK have only just reached 10,000 tests per day, or so they say, a week ago. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, I mean, there's different arguments, aren't there, that um, we should be... I mean, I think at the moment now we're running out of basic... There's been a lack of reagents and a lack of even some basic equipment like, like tubes to put stuff in um, and pipettes to do droplets and so on and so forth. It's been chat that we should have probably been using smaller laboratories more quickly, which I think is a strategy that's now trying to be used more. But I don't honestly know why the testing has been so poor. Uh, well, I mean, I think the government's got to take some responsibility for it. I saw Dr Philip Lee, who's a Tory MP, who was involved in um, pandemic planning while he was, I think it was during the last government. And it was identified that a pandemic was the greatest current risk to human life in the UK. So something we should be taking pretty seriously. And the ability to ramp up testing, I would have thought, would be something the government, I mean, it's got to be something done centrally. And I would have thought the government should have been much better prepared to roll out a large number of tests, given that that's the key. You know, it's been shown to be the key if you look across the countries that have done well to controlling a pandemic and we were woefully underprepared. And what would you say has been the consequences of a, such a poor testing strategy? Uh, well, you can you can look at South Korea's new case rate or mortality rate and compare it to ours. And you could argue the lack of testing has been responsible for a huge amount of that mortality. So a huge number of excess deaths would be the consequence. Do you think the government, as Matt Hancock has said, will reach 100,000 tests a day by the end of the month? Yeah, well, it's interesting seeing him talk about that subsequently because he seemed to be removing um, his name from the um, responsibility list. 
you seem to sort of um, start already sharing the blame out between de- various different organisations for when it doesn't happen. I mean, it'd be a great achievement if we did do it, but uh, I got the impression when I saw him speaking the other day that he was already uh, preparing the country or preparing to have his name look innocent. And of course, Boris Johnson said he was aiming for 200,000 tests a day. Um, yeah, there's been various different numbers quoted. Um, I know Michael Gove said that we were at 10,000 about a week ago when we were actually only at 7,000, but wouldn't be the first lie he's told, would it? And who, if anyone, do you feel may be held accountable for any failures? Well, I think you've got to look at it at different levels, haven't you? So certainly my organisation has responded in what appears to me to be a very efficient way and people have been very generous with their time and very accepting of rotors that might cause them difficulties, accepting going on to resident night shifts and so on and so forth. So I think you've got to look at things, certain things with responsibility in, in terms of passing blame out, certain things with responsibility of the government and certain things with responsibility of hospitals and of workers within those hospitals. And what aspect of this would you say fell under the government's remit? Uh, well, I mean, I think testing falls within the government's remit. And I think there's been a lack of guidance on PPE. I think one of the things that's been very stressful is that people are coming in and getting different guidance each day. Um, and that guidance seems to not necessarily be based on what's best for them or the patient, but be based on rationing of equipment. The, the thing is with this, right, a pandemic is not something that's completely unpredictable. It's not like we've been invaded by aliens. They talk about black swan events, don't they? And people were trying to call um, the stock market crash in 2008, you know, with um, the collapse of Lehman Brothers and so on, a black, a black swan event. But it wasn't. It, it was actually, it was foreseeable to a certain extent. And the same with this. This isn't something that's completely unforeseen. The PPE should have been there with the ability to ramp up production of it very quickly because this is something that we should have, should have been anticipating. It's not a massive surprise. I'm not saying you necessarily have like a billion pieces of PPE sat around because they will, um, you know, lose their sale by date and so on and so forth. But you need to have factories that are ready to switch over and the government should have had a plan ready for that. And do you think the timing of the lockdown was right and proper? Well, I think that's very difficult to argue whether that was done in a timely manner or not. You're, we're already at the point now where you can see people are finding it difficult. They're starting to flout it. It's got massive economic consequences as well. And so I can't give you a, a doctor's advice on that because the, the financial implications are there, are there as well. I think the trouble is, is if you started it a week earlier, people would start kicking off a week earlier as well. Uh, but we've got you know another month of this. Um, and I think if you start it too soon, it ends up being impossible to maintain down the line. I mean, I think stating the lockdown, I mean, it looked crazy what was going on in London, saying there's a lockdown and then allowing tubes to run. And, you know, the first day of the lockdown, there were tubes running that looked like normal rush hour tubes. The fact that you're permitting that as a government, you're encouraging people to flout it, aren't you? You know, you're encouraging, you, you've got to be doing something a bit more direct about that. You can't just say to everybody, stay two metres apart, don't go out unless it's essential and all that sort of stuff. And then have people pack like sardines in a tube. What's your opinion on Matt Hancock's viewpoint of not giving nurses a pay rise at this current time? Well, I think his exact word was, um, now is not the time to enter into a pay negotiation with nurses. And I'd agree with him on that. I think now's the time just to, um, I, I think, give everyone under a certain amount, I would say 40,000 a reasonable number or whatever the average wage is, everyone within the NHS, give them a 10% pay rise. We can do negotiations later. But I think th- these members of society have been treated appallingly by consecutive Tory governments in terms of their pay, been massively under-recognised. They've borne the brunt of the 2008 crash. Um, you know, people 
on the average wage and below. There's been a huge amount of money thrown around to individuals in different places. And I think nurses, ODPs, midwives, porters, other kind of healthcare workers, all of those people should be getting an immediate 10% pay rise. And finally, what would you say to those people who are flouting government laws, meeting at park benches, going round to friends' houses, although they may be keeping a social distance? Well, this is the difficulty, isn't it, is that certain... I mean, I'd say, first of all, to people like that, you're not immune to this, um, and it's killing young people as well. You know, it's killing people in their 30s and younger. So I wouldn't presume that just because you're young, you're not going to get this disease. But more importantly, you're putting the risk of potentially your parents and grandparents at risk. And I think we need to learn from countries who have managed it. I mean, I think when it all washes up, we'll be able to look at... We have some very hard evidence about mortality, infection rates and so on. I think the other thing is, is we should probably expect this to happen again these these coronaviruses this isn't as i was saying this isn't the first time there's been a scare about them uh this one just happens to have the right characteristics to spread well it's one of the difficulties and i'm not going to go on some socialist rant now but it's one of the difficulties with having everything privatized but we need to have some factories that produce i don't know what but they've got they've got the capability to rapidly flip over to producing ppe on a really large scale similarly with testing we need to in terms of when this is finished, my concern is is that you're going to have, it's going to be four months, basically, of people having absolutely grafted. All of our annual leave's been banned. So they're, they're going to be one taking annual leave and so on, and you're going to have this massive backlog of cancer cases. So I think the focus is going to shift fairly rapidly once this is finished from the viral disease to all of these cancer patients who are kind of getting ignored at the moment. And do you think there'll be a public inquiry into this? Well, I'm sure that I'm sure there will be an inquiry. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure how much these inquiries ever really change in the end. Certainly, there seems to have been members even within the um, Tory party who have been critical of the lack of planning for a pandemic, in that they've done drills showing that this could lead to fairly significant mortality and not acted upon them. But how much that will change, I don't know. A massive thank you there to Reese, a consultant anaesthetist in a busy hospital in the northwest of England. Plenty of food for thought and insight there. Join me next time when we'll be speaking with Dr Justin Varney, a former director at Public Health England and current director of health at Birmingham City Council, the area of the UK that has the second largest cases of COVID-19. Thank you for listening. This has been The Live Ape. Stay safe. My Daddy's Podcast.